Hey guys, today's guest is Deborah Levine and she graduated from Harvard University back in the 1960s and she's going to give her perspective, especially being a female trying to look for freedom by not fitting into society. I think uh, this will be a great inspiration for other females out there and I can't wait uh, for to hear your feedback on it. My name is Deborah Levine. Uh, at the moment, I am here in the city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, in this America, uh, but I have lived uh, in many different places and grew up in the British colony of Bermuda, the islands, we moved to New York, in Boston, Chicago, Cincinnati, <laughs> and it's been a wonderful journey. My journey has prompted my interest in diversity. And so I am one of Forbes Magazine's Diversity and Inclusion Trailblazers. And I am also an award-winning author of 15 books about diversity, including two memoirs that I think you know about. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question like, what women could or couldn't do in the 1960s? Yes. So when I was growing up in Bermuda, right, the, the year I was born was the first year that women were allowed to vote. And so it has been a, a part of my history to watch unfold the rights of women uh, and coming to uh, America, of course, we were able to vote, but it wasn't an easy um, accomplishment. And uh, we were not given uh, a lot of equal access to jobs. And when I was uh, <laughs> when I was growing up, um, my college, Radcliffe, was separate from Harvard, yeah. and, and when it combined, it was not an easy one, and that was in the 60s. And many times at that point, regardless of how well-educated you were, when you went to an employment agency, you were told you had to take a typing test, and it was likely that you would end up as a secretary, which is what I did at first. And uh, it has been challenging during those times, was it, wasn't it? Yes, it was very challenging. And, and it was due partly to the activism of women uh, during that period uh, that things changed. I was involved in the very first Women's Liberation March in America, in New York City, back in, I think it was 1970. Wanting equal pay, equal access, 
and it's still an ongoing struggle. Yeah, um, I completely agree with you on that. And even this uh, same thing happens with cultural limitations as well. Um, yeah, and uh, especially when you're a woman and you're born to be a leader of some sort, whether that's a company CEO or like a founder or someone like that, it's, it's challenging because the world kind of shuts you out of their little group. That's what yes, I feel like. And keep in mind that I, I grew up in a fairly conservative household yeah. and I was, the, I was the only girl. Okay. Uh, my siblings were brothers, right? And yet somehow I managed to be the only one of us that went to Harvard Radcliffe. And the, the competition, yeah. yes. And it took its toll of me. My health has always been an issue, uh, but I persevered. And that's one of the things you have to do, no matter what, yeah. keep going. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm considered the black sheep just because I'm like, I don't know, like, from a young age, I've been acting like a leader in some sort of way. I was like showing signs. And everybody accused me of acting that way because they wanted me to be a follower, which I was like, um, this, is, this wasn't possible for me in for some sort. And I tried to be a follower, but like it was not working for me. Yeah. I understand all too well. Now, I will say I was, I was very fortunate in that my parents were, were both college educated and unusual and did not at least consciously you know, stop me. But the expectations on a girl yes. were, were definitely there. Right? So um, I can remember asking my father when I was very young, I said, you know, I really don't like dusting and cleaning house. I would prefer to mow the lawn. And Joe, my brother doesn't like to do that. How about you give me that assignment? And he said, girls do not mow lawns. Exactly. So, <laughs> I know, so, I wanted to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was left to dust until one day my mother came to me and she said, you are now fired from dusting. And I said, excuse me, how do you get fired from dusting? She said, well, you're just not very good at it. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> how can you be bad at dusting? <laughs> well, my father was former military intelligence officer, and he was very, very detailed about cleaning, and dusting was part of that. And Apparently, I just did not pass muster. <laughs> yeah, I think a similar scenario just happened to me. That's why I said, like, when I, especially when I saw your book, I was like, she has a life that's so similar to mine. And that's, that's what caught my eye in the book. That's why I'm so, like, intrigued to read it. And the similar situation that took place is, like, for years, I've been asking my parents whether... You know, I can go out, okay, but they would not let me go out all the time. And uh, um, they could not actually put a finger on what type of person I was. 
and you know i just wanted to go outside you know enjoy maybe some social interactions with my really small circle okay like i don't know why i had a small circle ever since i was a, like a child like uh, the way i choose people it's like it has to be smart people for some reason it has to be uh, people with high standards and these are the people i kind of like attract and uh, i asked so i asked them i need to go and hang out with them but i wasn't allowed to go more than one outing together with them and then i i i think it took several years for me to actually go walking on the streets um, explore here because in back in my home in sri lanka like girls do not walk in the streets we there are cats calling and people whistling at us um and i do not like that and when i got the chance to actually live alone i managed to walk the entire streets like i didn't even like take uh, the metro station that offered because i i liked walking i like seeing um the scenery because i was always inside the house and yeah and when i was able to go they were like they came with me um to live with me as well because um, yeah, that's what family does when they like you too much <laughs> yes and uh, uh i wanted to go out always like i wanted to do like pretty adventurous stuff like hiking and um i wasn't allowed to do that and obviously it took like several years for it to become prohibited for me to actually go hiking and this was a sort of challenge i would say like just to go out would be a challenge for me and now i said hey mom i want to open my business i want to restructure the education system because we are about to head into a quite different era after the pandemic and then my mom was like if you they took again several uh, like several years for them to process it I, yeah and um it took like a couple of years for them to process it because it has never happened in their life that a woman asks them i want to start their my own business and um my mom asked me to i'm off limits from the kitchen my mom told me you can't cook anymore because you're doing business you're kind of doing your own thing so it's like you're off limits from the kitchen when you earn you can buy your own apartment and have your own apartment and you can do both if you want to like i feel like um people put like this red mark on you because you can do both <laughs> <laughs> goodness my goodness yeah. well um I will I will say that uh I haven't I don't think I've had quite the same amount of limitations put on me but my efforts to succeed and uh, were unusual uh I tried to get Harvard Radcliffe to uh, 
um, design a major in religious diversity, which didn't didn't exist back then. But that's was awesome! Like you have done incredible. <laughs> well, I didn't succeed. <laughs> I I. I, that I was told that uh, I had been accepted into the university to add interest uh, to the student body. But once I was there, I would comply like everyone else and major either in English or economics. And uh, I did not. And it was, it was the first year of a new major called folklore and mythology. And one of the things that you could do in it was to have a minor in, in uh, something else. So uh, I chose to uh, have that minor in, in religious diversity uh, and ended up over at the Harvard Divinity School in classes there, uh, which otherwise I would have been banned from. Uh, so uh, I have created, designed what I felt the world needed and I needed you know, from the very beginning uh, and pushed it through one way or another. And that's kind of one of the pieces of advice that I give women like yourself, right? not just to persevere, uh, but be extremely creative in doing so because there are roadblocks and ways in which people put up barriers to us and that there are also some interesting ways around them yes. and that's that's what i've spent my life doing it's i'm also figuring out stuff like right now i i admit like i don't know all the answers but like i'm like uh, finding it out so how did you achieve freedom at last. Freedom at last. Uh, but it was a definitely a, a long time coming. Um, I had to spend time as a secretary, right? yeah. uh, then going back to um, being an entrepreneur. Now, you mentioned founding your own business. Yes. A lot of women do that because they're they don't see a place for themselves that uh cries out to them you know here we're waiting for you <laughs> and you know, and so the entrepreneurial spirit it brings us to the point of creating a business and uh, designing it the way we feel the world will hear us need us and we will have a, a, a wonderful, satisfactory experience doing it, even though it'll be a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. and so um, my first uh, experience doing that uh, actually um, came uh, at, at age 10, when we had moved to America from Bermuda, which was British English speaking. and um, I found myself not fitting in, especially for in, in regard to language. Yeah. Right? I spoke British English, they spoke American English, which to me was a bit uh, roughshod. And so at age 10, I took a, a, 
a cardboard box and I set up my own little store outside the house on the sidewalk. And the, the, uh, the sign said, learn to speak proper English here. <laughs> <laughs> now I did not charge anyone, I didn't make any money, but it, it was part of my way of thinking, you know, if you don't, if you don't see what you feel should be happening, then you have to make it happen. Yeah. And I did teach uh, these, the young kids on the block Mm -hmm. proper English. Uh, my parents never stopped me. I'm sure that they were inside laughing their heads off at this <laughs> 10 year old <laughs> who could not stand the American English without some kind of intervention. Um, but eventually what happened is I learned to, uh, to write in both styles, British English, course I already knew and American English and what that has done for me right instead of just you know being separate it has allowed me you know, to reach with my writing across the whole globe yeah. I had no idea at age 10 what I was preparing myself to do but within us we have instincts a sense of, of what to do that we need to follow because the outcome is going to be amazing. Yeah, like uh, I'm also following my instincts as well. And I found out that I'm one of those people who adapt, adapts to the situation really fast. And when, you, when you're the, uh, one of those people, it's like you, can, you will be able to survive um, the world's like harshest uh, crisis that they put onto us like all these challenges all life's challenges yes and um uh i actually spoke to another author as well uh, he's the author of um the fourth age he yeah he mentions that we are heading into an era especially i will my generation and my kids will be facing it and in that generation, he also mentioned that people need to adapt quickly. They do. And one of the things about, about the uh, issue of adaptation is because I left a culture at age seven, Bermuda, yeah. and came to a very different culture, New York, right? the ability to adapt, right? was built in very young. And when the younger you learn to adapt to a different culture, whether you had in mind that you wanted to or not, <laughs> right? the more the skill set is deeply embedded in you and you can use it for all the years to come. Uh, and uh, some people actually have a name for those youngsters who have transferred to a different culture. It's called a polyglot. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm also one of them. <laughs> I think you are, <laughs> and and we we don't even realize the skill set that we have until we look around and we see it absent in so many others. Right, and then it's almost a um, a sense of responsibility of using it for humanity, because we can really in, 
in many ways anticipate what's going to happen more than most and how that adaption, adapting will be necessary and what it will look like. And, and one of the things that I've done over the years, uh, this must have been maybe 20 years ago, is uh, this, this small city, Chattanooga, Tennessee, yes. was about to become an international hub for industry with new organizations coming in and building plants and manufacturing. Uh, and a friend of mine at one of the colleges said to me, do you think we're ready for this? And my response was, uh, no. You're <laughs> never ready for suddenly. You're never ready. And she said, well, what are you gonna do about it? And I said, me? I, she said, yeah. I said, okay. And so I created a global leadership class and anyone who wanted to join could. And we taught it, we gave degrees, you know, graduation ceremonies, and I created something for them called the Matrix Model Management System. And basically it, it's, it's a neuroscience approach to creating the flexible mind and the ability to apply it to communication, emotional intelligence, decision-making, as well as long-term planning. Because I felt that that was the kind of, of mindset that was going to be required to be able to adapt quickly. Because there were gonna be many changes that we would not be able to anticipate and we still had to adapt. Yeah. Uh, I think I may collaborate with you in the future. <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, because uh, I know that a lot of what I say can appear to be esoteric to people, you know, they don't necessarily quite understand where I'm going. I created a workbook out of that textbook that you can use to train teams, organizations. They can write in it. They can work together on it. And they will have broadened their ability to digest big data and adapt to new situations almost without realizing it. That is awesome. Like I am trying to like restructure education, so I might need that as well. I'm going to show you the version of it that I created for educators specifically because I totally agree with you it's the education right that needs it so much yes be, uh, because like I feel like the education system is too expensive and not enough people have access so they so they kind of have these toxic ideas like racism kind of emerge through it and all these cultural like limitations kind of um emerge through um, I lack of education or inability or in access to education. Yes, access is one issue, but what, what happens when you get that education is another one. Um, is it providing you with skills you need to quickly adapt to the changing environment that we now see? And I'm not sure that it does. So, uh, 
I, I will get you a copy of this workbook. And what you'll see is how I translated my early studies in cultural anthropology right, into a fun set of experiences and exercises to do together that pretty much make you smile mm -hmm. and make even laugh because that's when you learn the most. Yes. <laughs> I used to learn chemistry by telling chem jokes, like making up chem jokes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Although you do have to be careful with humor because it can be culturally specific and you can't make jokes that offend. Yes. And so um, it's, it's an interesting journey that we have mapped out for ourselves, is it not? Yes, it is. And now uh, I want to tell um, my audience about your book and for other other women who are trying to like who are struggling to find freedom. All right. So tell them the name of the book. Let's start with that. Um, that's another question for me is why did you name it the magic marble tree? <laughs> so this is the, actually the second of the two memoirs. The first one is about the liberator's daughter. And it's, it's about um, my father in particular, World War II, learning from his experiences and how it has inspired me to do a lot of my work in diversity. And um, with many of his letters from yeah. the war, the second, the magic marble tree is dedicated to my mother. Mm -hmm. And let me share with you that my mother, whose name was Estelle, uh, was also brought up on the island of Bermuda and ended up at Radcliffe. And she was a pioneer in the field of special education back in the 1940s. She dealt with uh, young people who um, were dysfunctional. She was amazing with people. She had people skills that my father could only dream of. <laughs> That's uh, why, why, why the magic marble tree though? Um, so, okay, so it starts out with a story in Bermuda. Yes. With uh, my mother holding my younger brother watching from the kitchen door and me running out into the garden where the trees were and uh, playing with uh, marbles, which in those days, before we had any television, by the way, was a very popular game. And I was using them in the garden, and holding them up to the light. And out comes my older brother with our dog, his dog, excuse me, Woofy. And he looks at me and he says, you know, if you plant that marble in the garden, it will grow into this magic tree and marbles will be blooming from it forever. And you'll have all the marbles you ever want. And I said, well, I love that. 
So I buried my favorite marble in the garden, right? Well, <laughs> a week goes by, two, three. I go out into the garden. There's nothing there. So uh, Joe, my brother, comes out again with Wolfie and stands there watching, laughing. And I said, I don't understand. Nothing's growing. And he said, I can't believe you fell for that. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> so I got mad and I said to Woofy, come on, Woofy, we're going to fly away. It's the magic place where the marbles grow. And off Woofy and I ran, Joe yelling, dogs can't fly. <laughs> <laughs> can too <laughs> and off we went and i searched for that magic marble tree forever and i believe i found it <laughs> in my spiritual journey you know coincidence you said that uh, your mother was a pioneer of education and you wrote the second book on behalf of her my second name actually means tree a tree oh, there is a symbolism to the trees they speak to us they are spiritual in their nature and the the trees on the island were just this amazing blossoms have you ever seen a tree called um a, a Ponciana tree. Maybe, but like, I need red, to look it up. Um, red blossoms. It is magic. And I remember when my daughter was just a little girl and she said to me, she said, how come God saved all his miracles for all those people back in the Bible times? What about us? <laughs> So I took her to the window and I said, see that tree out there? Yeah. See the rainbow behind it? You've just seen a miracle. She's, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know, like nature is miraculous. Like, like I also, like during my free time, I go to nature, like, spend as much time as I can as possible because I really love it I never got to experience it back in my home country and here it's like there are no like animals or insects going to come at me like because I'm coming from a jungle <laughs> a rainforest <laughs> yeah so um that was like really beautiful and I kind of write about flowers um was like I wrote something like something so short it's like I chose to be heuristic I chose to stand out I chose to be the middle this red among the common sprouts oh I love it <laughs> <laughs> a little poetry never hurt right yes I've written poetry too I don't know it's like inspiration when you go out there it gives oh, yeah. you so many ideas it does. It gives you the sort of music of creation as you watch it. Blows in the wind. 
nothing like it. And your first book is like the liberator's daughter. You call it the liberator's daughter because it's your father that set you free. Actually, um, it was my father who was a liberator during World War II oh. of uh, one of the Nazi death camps. Okay. And um, we, we uh, being Jewish, um, saw the, the Holocaust and the annihilation of Jewish populations by the Nazis. He saw it up close and, and personal. And for many years, he was unable to talk about it. It was so... Yeah, it's so horrific. Yes, it was. And it wasn't really until I it took a job in Oklahoma after the Oklahoma City bombing by a group of neo-Nazis. Uh, that my father uh, jumped on a plane, from, he was living in Cincinnati, and came to visit to make sure that his baby was okay. That I, uh, <laughs> and that's when he told me and I, uh, that what he had done during the war and that he had kept all his letters about it to my mother and her love letters to him in a file cabinet tucked away in his closet. I, what? <laughs> and so when I heard, I, when I started to hear these stories, I said, Daddy, it's time for you to speak up and talk about this. And I arranged for him to be on a radio show, interviewed by a, a colleague of mine who was actually the dean of the local law school. And he did, and we recorded it. And I have that recording up on my website, the American Diversity Report, along with the book, The Liberator's Daughter, so that not only do people can re read my stories, but they can hear from him. He's passed away many years ago, but his, his voice, his legacy is embedded in me. And that's why I'm the liberator's daughter. And as tough as that military soul was, so am I. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Even my dad is, uh, my dad had, doesn't have experience of being in the army, but he's strong enough and he's being protected me. Like he's, he's like a muscle guy. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The protection, but we also absorb the strength. Yes. And, uh, like one more thing I had, I have to ask you about this book. So you go by the liberator's daughter. I was thinking like a few months ago, this is another coincidence that I should put my, um, put this in the book, but I didn't put it yet. Uh, my book was Unveiling the Truth Behind Kathleen's Destiny. And I just wanted to put by the immigrant's daughter. I love it. <laughs> I didn't put it, but like, since you mentioned it, maybe I should. 
could try it out on some friends and see what they think. But I think it's a, a great, great idea. It gives people, it get, grabs attention. Right? And that's what we need to do in today's environment when there's so much competition for attention. I should do that. <laughs> but, and this podcast will be the immigrant's daughter meets the uh, liberator's daughter. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so what did you learn coming to America from British Bermuda as a kid? Oh. One of the, this is going to be probably ridiculous, but one of the things I learned was about language. Yes. That, that Americans have a very different sense of language and they love idioms and they like to swear. And <laughs> when, when I was worried about not fitting in, I would just say something like, mm, damn, right? Now, I was very careful never to say that at home. It would not go over well. <laughs> but understanding the two different cultures, the directness of the Americans and their, their, their independence there. It was, it was fascinating. Uh, as, as I've gotten older, however, I have found that the indirectness and diplomatic skills that I picked up as a Bermudian young girl uh, are now more valuable here in America than ever. And the kindness, civility that goes with it, which has unfortunately been lost a good deal, right? now makes me kind of an icon instead of weird. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I learn is right, nothing goes to waste. And what once was weird is now incredibly valuable. So if you feel you're weird, good. <laughs> I, have always felt, I have always felt incredibly weird and I felt like I don't fit in anywhere. No good. matter in my home country, nor here, like I didn't feel. I don't feel fit back in Bermuda either. But the reality is once I stopped trying to fit in, it all came together. That is true. Like I stopped trying, um, I think a year ago and then everything started like becoming to feel better. Like, yeah. yeah. And I kind of had a sense of direction as well afterwards. That's excellent. So like, how did you go through your failures in your life? You persevered? Part of it is persevering, but as I said, nothing goes to waste. Yes. I didn't realize that when I was younger uh, and had to uh, spend some time as a, a secretary making the coffee for the office gentleman. Um, but now I've got great stories to tell. 
and I wrote it all down. And writing has helped me get through so much of the difficult times. So I started to keep a diary when I was just eight years old. I feel you. Yes, <laughs> this is great, right? It, it, it helps so much. Yes. Stories, the transformation. When I first came to America, I became very ill. I caught everything, mumps, measles, chicken pox, you name it. Uh, and I lay there and I thought I, I was going to die. And one of the things that came up, I was just eight years old, was I may die, but I don't want to disappear. I want to be remembered. I want a legacy. I want somehow to make a difference. So I took my diary and I wrote, I was telling this to someone the other day that was astounded. I wrote my last will and testament, right? Of what I wanted to leave for people. And some of it was actual items. And some of it was my spiritual abilities, my attitude, my intelligence. I wanted to embed them in people so that we keep going. Now, fortunately, I recovered. <laughs> Obviously, I'm still here. But the desire for a legacy was embedded very early. And yeah. that even like when I was a kid, I felt like I had this urge to help people. It didn't matter. And my mom would tell me, that means you're a doctor. <laughs> but being a doctor is not the only way you can help people. No. From a younger age, I called myself the innovator, the world innovator. But I didn't know exactly that this was what it meant. Like at the time, I was like nine, ten years old, I would call myself the world innovator. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, the, the urge to um, make a difference, to help people, I think. I don't know if we're born with it or not, but I think it comes to us at a very early age and it doesn't go away. It just adapts to new situations and how you want to do that. Um, I created the American Diversity Report 15 years ago before there was even such a thing as a blog. Right? I put it up online, a, a friend, told me to do that rather than a PDF. And I started to get articles from all over the world and give people a voice through their writing. Oh, it just has sustained me. Anytime I have a bad day, right? I work on it. And all my wonderful contacts around the world. And I'm reborn. I really write about my venture also on your... Thank you. Yeah. I, yes. What was the first reaction to people when you cre created it? What's first reaction? The, it was originally just a PDF newsletter. Yeah. And I remember being in a, a meeting somewhere and a gentleman came up to me who was uh, the, an IT director of the local newspaper. And he said, 
I recognize what you're doing. I don't think you do. And I want you to change from this little PDF to an online website and greet the world with what you're doing. Because I was just doing a few little articles here and there. I ran something called the Women's Council on Diversity. We did a lot of work. And so I said, okay, help me. And so he created it online and we got going. And then um, I got <laughs> hacked and death threats. And unfortunately, the death threats went through every website this man hosted. And he, said, he called me up and he said, look, you're smart. Um, create your own platform. Do everything yourself. I'm sure you can because I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> so, um, there you go. You adapt. And off we went. And I launched it. And one of the colleges loved the idea so much, they hosted the launch of the American Diversity Report, which frankly kind of freaked me out. You know, like, why don't you warn me when you're gonna pay attention <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, the, the dean of the college got up there and started talking and started telling people all these wonderful things about me. I couldn't stand it. I went and I hid under the staircase, you know, like this, until he was finished. And my husband came and dragged me out, said, they're waiting for you. Okay. I wasn't used to being in the spotlight. That has taken almost as much of my energy to adapt to as anything else. When you do get that. Yes. I, I feel the same way because even I'm not used to this spotlight, I just act like my normal self. <laughs> it will it will evolve beautifully. It will. But it is part of the journey. Yes. <laughs> it evolve like, uh, yeah, to evolve from like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Very good analogy. What prompted you to create your first community coalitions and what did you learn from it? My first one, let's see. Um, I was in Chicago and I was uh, the interreligious affairs director for the American Jewish Committee in Chicago. Uh, I had gotten the, the job in part because of my dad's contacts in the Jewish community and because no one would hire me as an executive. I'd only been a secretary. So now I was an assistant director and I was also in charge of the National Workshop on Christian Jewish Relations. And I had to pull that together it, it was the planning of it and the implementation of it took a year and a half of my life, but it taught me so much about organizing and networking and community building. And when it was over, uh, my health had taken a hit. 
And I decided to resign and become that entrepreneur again. And I created a community organization called the DuPage, which is outside of Chicago, the DuPage Interfaith Resource Network, and used the skills that I had learned to create that all on my own, make it a nonprofit. And that was 30 years ago, and it's still today. I feel like like it's destiny or something that I came across you. Like, because we have so many similarities, like you can teach me from your own past. Well, I, I certainly um, understood at that time that I was doing something uh, that came under the category of pioneer. Yes. And so I started again, to document all that I was doing because I thought maybe what I was accomplishing might be useful to somebody else at some point. And so that, that was a period uh, where I started publishing books. Uh, and I was actually hired by other organizations to write for them. And uh, one of the books that I wrote, um, Teaching Curious Christians About Judaism, um, it was used for years and years until people ran out of the copies. And then I was asked to rewrite, revise it. And I did. And one of my, my mentors, colleagues, uh, took that book to the Vatican as a gift for Pope Francis. And I had I certainly never saw that coming when I was creating back in the day, the books uh, that I started with. And, but I, I realized then somewhere inside me that not only was I a pioneer, but I was a teacher and a mentor and I would have to document everything. So the next book was Religious Diversity in Our Schools. And that was created because the education system was not able to do it themselves. Wonderful, um, especially to go to the Pope and give, you, give him what you just created is awesome and i i am a buddhist and for some reason i just think that every religion is the same even though my like parents like do not have the same mindset like i feel like every religion is the same thing it's just like different people who have actually made different rules but it's supposed to be the same thing well, it, there is a, a sense of divinity that is common to them all. Yeah. And it's true, the rules, the dietary restrictions, the holidays, the calendars, you know, are all different, the language and the yeah. sacred texts. And, and so one, one of the things that I did in my book was created quick reference religious diversity cards. And uh, I listed all the major religions and what they did one was about food, 
One was about sacred time. Uh, one was about sacred space. <laughs> one in particular that, that I was asked to do was about uh, death and dying. Uh, because religion has such an immense impact on how we look at that. Uh, and I, I was actually asked to do that one by law enforcement so they could deal with things appropriately. Uh, and and I, I, I really enjoyed putting things together uh, for the classroom that are usable uh, and as far as uh, the issue of um, the, the, the Buddhism goes, I want to share with you that when I got to Radcliffe Harvard, okay, one of the things that I did first, I was curious, I needed to know, was I went over to the Divinity School and I took the history of Buddhist thought. I enrolled in it. And um, when I came time for the final, to do the final exam essay paper, I, I didn't know what to do. I was the only, not just freshman, but only undergraduate in this course. And so I went to the professor and I said, could you kind of assist me in making sure that I have the right topic here? And he says to me, are you telling me you're a freshman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, he almost fell off his chair laughing. He said, how'd you get in here? I walked in. He said, you're not allowed here. <laughs> oh, he said, but I tell you what, we're going to give you the, the chance to do the exam, pass the class. You'll get a good, decent grade. You've done well up to now. Okay, <laughs> his name was Professor Nagatomi and I will be forever in his debt for his kindness and his sense of humor <laughs> of the little freshman that wandered into his space. <laughs> I feel I like, I am curious also when I need to know something, I would, yeah. Yeah. I would go right away and then check it out. Like <laughs> I don't have barriers. Like I don't know why people have put these like imaginary barriers or rules. I I just go and find out for myself if I need to find out something for myself. Yeah. And that's what, what makes you special um, to keep exploring, to to go after the information. Uh, now, sometimes now online, you can find out just about anything. Um, but back in the day, it took a little more effort. Yes, because the books were so thick and you had to find everything like through the books. Now you have just Google search and it just comes up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that way. Yeah. You had to work at it. And you had to um, spend a lot more time in libraries. Yes. I, I can't tell you, see this behind me? Yes. <laughs> this is me, this is the books. So um, my father, yeah. he was a literary man. He, 
he took us to the library every weekend. And we weren't allowed to leave until we had chosen books to take out. I love and those old fashioned books. It's like, yes, yes. And he had to approve of what we had chosen. Okay. And if we hadn't gotten the right books, he would choose them for us. And there were books and bookcases in every room in our house, except the bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing really my mom used to read books and i was gifted encyclopedias when i was a kid encyclopedias <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so by the time i was four i could read me too like yeah i think that's the age like we can read and i was like uh, my first language is like english um, so like uh, in the classrooms, the teachers like taught us English, but like I find this like phenomenal because I was a kid and I was trying to understand my mother tongue through just words and actions. And I wasn't taught the language until I was like eight. And I already knew what my mom was talking about, what my parents were talking about. Polyglot. <laughs> Polyglot. <laughs> it's like I observe a lot and I listen a lot. I do I speak less, especially in classrooms. And when I'm trying to understand like someone's behavior or behavior patterns. Yeah. And that's how I kind of like came up to this level, I guess. Um, even understanding relationships and how it took place back at home and here, here abroad. It's, it's a new experience for me. But yeah. You're viewing it like a scientist. Yes. You know? hmm, element one, element two, kind of put them together. Do they blow up or do they make something yes. else? Yes. <laughs> I have a lot of trial and errors. And I try to experiment, do a lot of experiments. Like um, it's 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 the way it's how I learn. It's basically how I learn life, how I learn to understand these new types of people, how I merge with their cultures. There has to be. I I mean, a lot of people consider uh, me like the odd one or the pe person who's doing everything wrong in a sense. <laughs> but uh, I'm just, I, I do like tiny pranks, like not illegal or going out of the law, just to find out whether my kind of hypothesis is right or wrong. <laughs> and and that's, that's part of curiosity, part of the process of adapting to a new culture. But it's also part of the process of adapting to a new era. And we've talked about that and how people are gonna need that skill. Uh, and when did you create your cognitive diversity system and why? Okay, so I mentioned that that was the matrix model management yes. Yes. that I created and um, it was uh, done as part of a global leadership class here yes. as, we, as the environment was about to change dramatically. 
And it was already in process uh, when I, during the time when I was running, creating the Women's Council on Diversity. And I created that, uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, you don't, you can't put a name to your instinct, mm -hmm. but I had, I, had been, I had gotten ill and had to resign my job. I was very much alone. I decided to pull together my, my women friends. Let's network. Let's have a lovely time together. Right? And, and I like the diversity. And, and this is a small town that a lot of them had never met, the diverse groups came together started discussions and then 9-11 happened and people were terrified they everything changed in our environment suddenly it was chaos and that's when the women's council right, morphed changed from a sweet group of women to a powerful pioneering group in diversity and inclusion in chaotic times. And I made sure that we had monthly luncheon, we call them brown bags because you brought your own lunch, meetings with different speakers. And so you could hear from different cultures and different ideas and that we were all in this together. And one of the things that I had to do was pull the women out of the background where they were. Frequently they were the, the mainstays of their cultural group, but didn't have a voice. And I said, it's time for you to have a voice. You're going to be a speaker. And they go, no. And so that's when I started teaching the art of storytelling in presentation so that you could give a great deal of information about your culture in a rather short time with through stories. The storytelling piece is what I studied back at Harvard, nothing goes to waste. And so I started that cognitive diversity book, The Matrix, uh, with the science of storytelling and teaching it, giving out worksheets and finding those worksheets kept disappearing. People, hmm, I'll take that one home. Oh, I'll take that to my friend, my kid. Every, <laughs> I, I got the message. <laughs> we are definitely heading to a collaboration in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. What has been your ongoing connection to STEM? Ah, okay. So back in like 1965, I was a senior in high school and I was determined to be a philosopher in life, a poet. And my mother came to me and she said, this is the first year they're offering a class in matrix algebra, which is the basis for computer programming. And I said, that's nice. And she said, no, you don't understand. You are taking it. This is the future. 
And I said, no, I'm gonna be a poet. She said, this is not a suggestion, dear. You will take the class. And so I did. And as I look back on it, I realized that somehow the other people had recognized that I had mathematical skills, even if that wasn't my main interest. I started studying advanced math right, around age eight. Go figure. And I just kept going. And mom was convinced that I should be doing this. All right, all right. And it turned out that um, I would eventually be doing something with computers and ended up as an IT office manager in 1985 or so, along with being its interreligious affairs director. <laughs> and I said, I said, why are you making me the IT manager? Because the computers had just arrived. They're still in boxes. Why me? And he said, because you're the only person in the entire office that has even touched one. So I didn't have much choice. I was it. And I like to tell people what it was like back in the day when it broke down and I had to call the manufacturer and they talked me through disassembling the computer's hard drive and cleaning it with a number two pencil, right? Well, if you get to do that, somehow people realize you can do computer stuff, you can do all this STEM stuff. And I ended up teaching technical writing at a college for engineering and computer science and doing quite a bit with the women's STEM club here in town speaking, introducing them, have, publishing their articles, giving them a voice. And I've done it for you know, almost two decades. It's one, one of the things that is truly my delight to do and honored. Yes, like I found a similar experience once again, because like I was doing sciences and um, at the start, like I wasn't really good at math because my teachers weren't that good. And then like, but the age of 50, like I, I, I was doing like um, physics math also without doing physics. I, it's like mechanics. I was doing mechanics. I was like, what is happening? I, I used to be bad at that. <laughs> and my uncle used to teach me and um yeah, I was, I was like, because I was trying to figure out things by myself. <laughs> and I, I did, like, I did weird stuff to get there, but ultimately I got there because I did stuff nobody else would do. Nobody else would do every sum in a book. I did that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I am, my, my husband was a design engineer before he um, uh, retired and um, we, we say he does the design around physics and physical things, and I do the design around human things, but we both have the same intellectual curiosity and drive. Mm -hmm.
So like, I, it depends on how you approach the situation. I didn't know that I had that ability to kind of do it. Like I was doing it my own weird way. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing that we don't realize uh, at the time what's happening. Um, 40, 50 years after taking matrix algebra, uh, one of my classmates who I was in the class with uh, when she realized I was taking this job at the College of Engineering, she wrote me an email and said, finally, <laughs> you realized what you can do. <laughs> and I don't know. I realized a lot of things about myself, especially when I shifted environments. Um, I also understood like my psyche is like faster than most people. And I didn't realize that until my environment sort of changed. I thought I was like the same as everybody else. But like their psyche was a bit slower, especially considering not only like uh, academic stuff, like real life situations, like practical situations. I realized that um, a lot of Western people's psyche is too slow. <laughs> It's, it's interesting, um, slow may be one way to describe it, but I also like to think that we have additional um, neuropathways. Yeah, I think they haven't fully, like, uh, fully grasped uh, the capabilities of their psyche. I feel like there's still more to go and they don't know how to do it because they never challenge themselves. So I, I think that they can get there, but they never challenge themselves the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that some of us are, are, are born attuned to it right? mm. and, and fall into it and then keep going and practice and it becomes bigger and bigger part of us. And others do not have that background and it's very difficult for them but not impossible, I think. Yeah, right. not impossible. It's, it's hard. It's like, it's hard to like, uh, like get in tune with it. It's really hard too, because like, I remember as a kid, like it was really hard for me to get a lot of things, but I tried, I tried my hardest. And because of that, like, I think my psych has gone faster. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you find that the magic marble tree that you planted is actually you. Yeah. <laughs> so inspirational. How did you get involved in re uh, re religious diversity? Ah, okay, so um, I didn't set out uh, to do that as part of my career. Um, my, um, uh, I had, been a dancer and I had my own dance company and I was doing uh, even some uh, publications around uh, history of dance, love history. In this particular case, it was the Baroque period, French Baroque. Uh, we can talk about that one one day. And what happened is that um, my mother became uh, quite ill with cancer and in her honor, when I went back, I went back to, to school, get a master's degree, uh, although I had designed it for arts and economic development, 
I had a piece in there that was about religion and how it has, uh, what role it has to play in urban planning and development of communities. So when I graduated and she was so sick, uh, in her honor, I took a job at a Jewish organization. That was part of the, my reason for doing that because she, um, she was the principal of the Jewish school. And um, I actually applied to a very different job. Uh, it related to urban planning and politics. And they said to me, well, we don't wanna give you that one, but we'll give you the job of being director of what they called interreligious affairs. And I said, oh, why me? I don't know anything about that. And they said, well, you grew up in Bermuda as the only Jewish little girl on the island. Yeah, that was a long time ago, guys. And you studied religion at Harvard Divinity School. I said, yeah still a long time ago and limited. And no one else in the office wants to touch it with a 10 foot pole. It's yours. Please take the job. <laughs> okay, okay. And I, and I was off and running. So I'm sitting in my office. It gave me an ugly office with a window and everything and this skyscraper. I'm looking out the window and at the door, a very tall gentleman comes, stands there holding a book about interfaith and wearing a priest's collar. And he says, you're gonna need me. And I said, I have no idea who you are, but I know you're right. <laughs> and it turns out that he uh, was a Jesuit priest who also worked with the Vatican who was also part of the original committee on the Holocaust Memorial. He was in Polish and we're still friends today. And he wrote the foreword to The Liberator's Daughter. This is another um, coincidence I would like to say. I was also, when I was studying medicine, um, I was a part of the Jehovah's Witness just for educational purposes, just because I wanted to know what Christianity is, what is, what is the religion, what's it all about. I just know Jesus is there and Adam's and the Adam and Eve story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my grandmother was Catholic, Roman Catholic, so I was definitely interested in it. Yeah, yeah, I saw a vision that had nothing to do with my religion at the end of the day. Mm. Just made proof that probably religion is like one thing and just a mankind, one like a group of people just separated religion into like seven different parts or something like this, or many yeah. different parts. But it's just one thing. It's just one song. And so <laughs> in some ways it is. Um... It is also something that has deeply divided us. Um, and it's, um, it, the study of it has uh, been part of, of my 
work my soul, I think, uh, ever since uh, that first day um, when uh, the good father walked into my office saying, you're going to need me. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that I've learned about, about studying religion and, and, and speaking about it and, and talking to people about the, the ways to show respect in, in different religions in the workplace um, has been to broaden my mind to understand what is really valuable to people. And uh, fascinated that the most diversity professionals have very little background in religious diversity. Uh, it's too difficult, it's too complex. The, the ways you can make mistakes are, are <laughs> too many to count. Uh, and so most people simply avoid it. But as you can see, the curiosity and the, the idea of looking at, at it, what people are resonating to is, is um, a fascinating study. It both broadens our view of the human condition right, and gives us an awareness of how people are both brought together and divided. And if we don't have that awareness, how are we going to deal with the chaos and the divisive environment that we are presented with today, which is probably only going to get worse or more so? It is. Um, and I think um, a lot of the terrorism issues arise from religious problems, religious issues. And... Uh, to know nothing about it does not help. Yes. And the solution is basically to come together and unite, work together. To, to find common ground. And there are ways we find common ground. Uh, for example, every religion on the planet, right, teaches in some way the value of kindness and charity. We can work with that. Yeah. What do you see happening to the diversity, equity, and inclusion field of the future? That is a very good question. And one of the ones that I get asked quite a bit, many of my, my colleagues will say, well, how can we know? But the reality is many corporations and organizations are looking to uh, redesign their efforts around the diverse workplace and dealing with diverse vendors and diverse markets. Everything is up for grabs right now. And what that means is that they are looking for ways to uh, communicate and engage diverse people, realizing that they hadn't done a great job of that in the past. You know, I just gave a, a, a presentation about this um, and it, it's up on the American Diversity Report talking about over the years, the changing terminology 
involved in the diversity field. And it's quite amazing from diversity to inclusion, to equity, to belonging, to cultural competence and awareness, uh, to allyship. But there's a very definite common theme that we need to address, and that is the engagement piece, that somehow our differences are not bridged. And part of that, I believe, is the, the mindset and my matrix model management system, which people hadn't paid attention to for years, is all of a sudden front and center because you need that neuroscience to shift our thinking. This and what have you learned from championing aspiring women leaders that applies to the future? Well, there's certainly been a change in the numbers of, of women who are in leadership positions. However, it is not equal yet. Yes. And it is not, certainly not equal for women of color. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. But in, in talking with them over the years, I am impressed by their intelligence and their perseverance, the creativity and the people skills. And that's, and that's what we need these days. It's, it's really harder for like immigrant women to actually get out there. It's like, it's because of their culture. It, there's a lot of different reasons, um, none of them pretty. It's very difficult. Yeah. And it's, uh, we have had some um, women who are immigrants or, or daughters of immigrants um, do very well in, in this um, environment. Uh, I had a friend who years ago uh, published a book uh, on the success of women immigrants in America. And she uh, interviewed maybe two dozen of them and put them into the book so people could see their journey and how they did it and be inspired by that. Uh, and, and she included me in it. Even though I was technically born in this country, I, I did not grow up here. We moved after I was just months old back to Bermuda. So she considered me an immigrant too. And it was impressive that she would do this. And I think we need that more. I'm gonna talk to her after this webinar, i sorry, this podcast and ask her to do the second in the series, <laughs> which she hadn't anticipated, but I'm telling her maybe she needs to. <laughs> Yes, and uh, people also don't know what feminism actually is. It actually symbolizes equality, um, but uh, it's it's term feminism. It's like a it's a confused, coiled up term that everybody gets confused of because women weren't treated equally, and that's why it's stated as feminism. But it actually is gender equality. It's the very definition of gender equality. It is. Keep in mind, back, uh, back in the day when I was part of the early 
women's movement, that there was a pushback against us um, as being, um, annoying, loud, uh, unhelpful, disagreeable. And that's when the uh, term yeah, feminist, what, yeah. feminist, a follower. Had, yeah, we were meant to be followers as they, in their mindset. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, the word feminism took on a very negative quality in their minds. And I believe that people, they may not know the origin of the word feminist, but they sense there's a negativeness to it. And that is where it comes from. Back in the day, um, there were rather famous women, not just men, who objected to the women's movement. So unfortunate because they have to, like I, I would say small minds for them. <laughs> Different way of looking at the world. Yeah, different perspectives. So I would say like small minds. I would, that's how I would label them. <laughs> Do you think that's, that's fine with me? <laughs> <laughs> Do they get mad at it? <laughs> We've never had a female president of the United States. There's yeah. a reason for that. Yeah. It's only first ladies. And we had to get married to actually get noticed. <laughs> For the first time, we have a vice president who is female. First time in centuries. Yeah. And it's, it's an immigrant, yeah. She's an immigrant yeah. as well. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where um, the pushback is inevitable. You see it all over. It's tough. It is. Yeah. In so, many ways, yeah. people like me who are older, are more immune and less vulnerable to the pushback because there's a certain respect given to older. Yeah, yeah, the people. And uh, here in my region of the of America in the South, okay, one of the things I love about it is that older ladies get to say whatever they want. That's good because I'm, I'm actually told the opposite. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm growing into the role. <laughs> so uh, how would you like to end this podcast? Any motivational uh, quotes or advice you would like to give young women out there who are trying to pursue their dreams? Uh, keep in mind, right, that... The decisions you make you know, are wonderful in your life, but they may have some impact on other people too. So write, keep a diary, keep your history going because someday you're gonna use that in ways you can't even imagine now. And people will just say, thank you. Your legacy will be larger than you had ever thought. That's incredibly beautiful. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us on Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. We'll link all your details on the description. And um, if you ever want to come on, a, come on our podcast again and speak your 
more than welcome. Thank you. I'll take you up on that. Glad you guys enjoyed the episode we had and see you guys next time on Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. I'm your host, Rashni Hevawasam, and I am signing out.